The upcoming presentation is a two-man power trip of wrestling podcast production. John Paz, and with me as always is the star of the show, former WWE Tag Team Champion, eight-time Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champion, as well as one of the greatest trainers in the history of professional wrestling. He is the Doctor of Desire, Tom Pritchard. Tom, how are you today? Greetings, John, from the Volunteer State. One more time, Knoxville, Tennessee. I'm doing great tonight. I'm always doing great, man. i got to tell you, it's... uh. <laughs> it's it's great to be in Tennessee where at least some of the stuff is opening up. Yeah, right. I mean, it feels like little by little, I guess, depending on what state and what area of which state, things are starting to open up a little bit. Yeah, I can hardly wait till uh, whatever the new normal is going to be. I'm anxious to just move on, man. It's it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see how professional wrestling comes out and as well as sports entertainment uh, uh, on the back end of this. But uh, that's life. Yes, for sure. Now, we were kind of joking a little bit before we went on air and saying these kind of empty arena matches are getting old. Am I crazy, or are they they really, really starting to get a a little tiresome and a little old? You know, uh, I will have to say this much. Uh, WWE has a knack for almost being the first in doing stuff like this, and, and everybody else seems to follow, whether it's the XFL uh, putting mics on coaches and referees, and you hear about Major League Baseball and the NFL wanting to do similar things. You know, they use a jib and the mm-hmm. uh, yep. other cameras, you know, later on. So, um, and, and then just recently, UFC had an empty arena match. So, uh, it, it's getting tiresome. Uh, it's getting um, uh, a little redundant, yes, but it, it's. <laughs> It, it, it's where we find ourselves today, and at least these guys are going out and they're making an effort. It, they're they're doing the best with what they have because this has never been done before. So they're the first, and they get to break the ground and and, and blaze the trail. And uh, you know, while while I may look at it and just kind of go, "Wow," sometimes I, you know, I also look at it and say, "Man, they're they're doing what they." feel like uh, they should be doing the way it should be done. So, And they're right because they're the first ones to do it. And uh, I can hardly wait though, uh, until uh, we're, we're all able to get people to come watch uh, 
professional wrestling and live again because it sure adds to it. You kind of need that crowd, right? I mean, you need that live crowd, the reaction, stuff like I, that. I think I think um, anybody who has ever stepped in a ring or, or on a ball field or any any, any kind of uh, court, I think yeah, I think you you play and you feed off the energy, and and that's not just wrestling, but I think it's uh, any any sport or any uh, performance. I really do. I think even a concert, you know. Uh, musicians playing <laughs> playing music and uh, putting it out there for free concerts on the internet and stuff. That's great, but I mean, there's still that buzz. There's still that that live energy that you I think uh, you miss. Everybody misses if you've ever performed in front of a crowd before. Hundred percent. Now today we're going to go back in the the way back machine, go into USWA and talk all about your time with the United States Wrestling Association, which of course anybody doesn't know out there, they absolutely should. But it's a professional wrestling promotion. It was based out of Memphis, Tennessee. It was really kind of founded when Memphis-based Continental Wrestling merged with Dallas's World Class Rest World Class Championship Wrestling, aka World Class Wrestling Association, thus making it the USWA. How and when did you get into USW? I guess it was around 1990-ish, 91, 89, somewhere around there. I guess oh. technically speaking, 91, when you, I guess when it's, it was, quote-unquote, USWA, right? I, I believe so, and um, I'm trying to think where I came from to, to go into Memphis because I had been in Memphis maybe – three times before, two or three times at least before, and um, – uh, gosh, but it was, it had to have been late 89 or 88 because I went to Smoky Mountain in 91, I guess, was it? Mm-hmm. Whatever it was, because I'm horrible with, with dates and especially as uh, time keeps going on, I get worse and worse. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it was during that time, um, that... Either Dundee called me or somebody uh, I either talked to or saw and asked about going. I don't remember. Uh, Eric Embry shortly took the book shortly after I got there. Uh, but, yeah, it had to have been around uh, 89 or 90 either way or maybe even 88 for the for the last – my last run, if you will, in Memphis. So basically continental to Memphis. And that, then maybe some stop with New Japan in between, something like that. That might have that sounds something like that. Yeah, and and uh, going back in, I have to tell you, uh, Memphis isn't one of the more favored or uh, desired territories. It wasn't one of the places everybody was, was standing in line to go, and and uh, I knew that, and I. Again, uh, I know it may be hard to believe, but I wasn't the easiest guy to get along with, and um, uh, it didn't communicate very well. So, but I, but I always said if you couldn't get booked in Memphis, <laughs> you you were really an outcast. So I, I got booked back in Memphis, but this was at a time when Jeff Jarrett was pretty much, I think, in his early years. Billy Travis was still there. Um, gosh, it was. You, you Terry Funk was making shots occasionally, and it was um, a, a place to go with. And, and I didn't know that much about Jeff then, but uh, 
yeah, when I got there, uh, you know, I was I was in a different place uh, than I had been, and I understood it was more of a uh, uh, how you play the game. And I, I, I mean, I always knew that, and I was I was a little I was a little more ready to play the game at that stage because uh, there's only always only so many times you can beat your head against a wall and then expect different results. So I, I was tired of doing that. And uh, I'll never forget that one, one night I was doing commentary in, in the Sportatorium in Dallas. And this was, um, oh, at least the first month Embry was there. And Embry was from Kentucky, but he, he always liked building himself from uh, Texas. And I got on uh, commentary one day. I said, hell, he's not even from Texas. He's from Kentucky. And, and immediately after that, he he, he put me – he and I together as a Texas connection against Tennessee because he, I think he wanted me inside the tent as, as opposed to outside. So it was a different um, uh, attitude on this trip. And um, I was, I was certainly willing to uh, a lot more willing than I was before to, to uh, listen to suggestions and ideas and follow through. Now, this may be a crazy question, but being a Texas boy, do you take kind of offense to somebody pretending they're from Texas? Oh, good God, no. No, no, no. Oh, okay. I, I take it as okay. a compliment. Not at all. No, oh, I was just, no. I was working on the, on the commentary. <laughs> no, that's what I'm saying. I, yeah. I, look, man, I, I I think it's everybody wants to go to Texas, be a cowboy, whatever it may be. More, more power to you, whatever you want to be. It's great. I was just giving every, I was just ribbing. I, I wasn't, uh, yeah, yeah. didn't mean that at all. Not at all. That's great. So Jerry Jarrett, he I guess technically is kind of involved in bringing everybody, and he's the Booker of USWA, Booker of Memphis. What's the relationship like with him? Uh, well, prior to I, I didn't have a whole lot of relationship, but this time around, um, I was in a different position, and I had more experience than I had had the prior times. And and uh, once again, I was. I was leading a different lifestyle, leading a different life uh, uh, attitude, if you will. And we, we, I, I, I had a better relationship with him this time because I had pretty damn good matches with Jeff. And uh, he, Jeff was one of those guys, like a Brad Armstrong, who, who I just clicked with in the ring. And some guys, you get in there and you, you have a chemistry with them. I had chemistry with Jeff and uh it's it's always good to do that because then you have opponents to work with and um i think jerry liked that i liked that and i i would think jeff liked that we you know we had some pretty good matches so uh this time around i would i would have more conversations with jerry jarrett but it's still memphis um <laughs> and i'm now the booker is eric embry and mm-hmm. uh, Eric has his uh, uh, quirks and qualms and things like that too, just like we all do. But uh, I, I can mesh with Eric. You know, he 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 kind of got me, and I got him. I understood where where his goals were aligned at, and and what he was trying to do, and and he knew what my goals were, and and my goals were to uh, uh, stay there and. <laughs> make make as much as I can in Memphis, which I knew that was a uh, wasn't going to be a lofty amount, but I, I wanted at least um, more than I got before, and I was in a different position too. And and 
Jerry Jarrett was uh, willing to listen this time. So, um, so everything was good. What did you think about the king of Memphis, Tennessee, Jerry Lawler? Well, in prior visits to Memphis, I, I didn't care too much for the king, but I, I, I always respected him. And um, and then I came to like him because I, I, I morphed into an understanding of uh, where he was at. And especially during the 1970s and 80s, you you had to have had that confidence, that ego, and that um, passion to to succeed. And Lawler did. Lawler was a tremendous worker. Lawler was Lawler was great. And he's, uh, but and and again, when uh, Embry took the book, I don't believe Lawler wanted to work a whole lot <laughs> under Eric Embry or with Eric Embry. I could be wrong, but that's just. My impression. I know we worked a few times with Lawler, and I worked a few times with Lawler on this this uh, go round, uh, and and I always respected him. Didn't always like him, but you know now I do, I, and I've liked him over the years because I got to see another side of uh, the king. So I mean that, and that happens with a lot of people in the business. There, there's some people early on that you just don't uh, uh, particularly care for, and then then. As, as time moves on and uh, uh, attitudes change and, and the climate becomes a little more uh, comfortable, palatable to be around, you know, you can, you can coexist and, and, and you actually like somebody. I mean, uh, yeah, it, it just it happens like that. But the cool thing about Lawler uh, was having a conversation with him about things that you – you enjoyed as well. He, you know, he was a big softball fan. I don't care about baseball, but he could, uh, he, you know, asking him about the the Andy Kaufman gimmick was was always kind of cool. So, uh, got along good this time, and I think I still get along with him. Was he a political beast, kind of the first time around? Obviously, you know, he was the king of Memphis, but had a big draw. But was he a political animal? <laughs> well, it, it it was a political uh, business uh, back then, and, and he, I, I believe even more so today. I don't know about more so, but but yeah, man. And I I I uh, I, I understood it. I just had an, an a, a an allergic reaction to it, I guess. And yeah, I mean, you had to. He's going to book who he likes. If he's the booker, he's an owner of the territory. He's going to have who he wants in there, and that's his his prerogative. That's uh, what he should do because he needs the guys that, that he can count on, that he can trust, that he has a relationship with. And and I didn't go out of my way to have a relationship with him my first few times in there. And I, I again, I can't explain it, but I've been that way my whole life and, and pretty much a loner. But yeah, I, I think he was a political. Uh, uh, manipulator as well as <laughs> everybody was back then. I mean, it was, it was natural. As far as Memphis, the territory, obviously WWF has come along and, and kind of just you know, wiped out the territories and really just became a national beast and a global beast and just dominated kind of the whole wrestling landscape for the most part. What did you think of Memphis? Because this isn't like the 70s and 80s where it's this hotbed of a territory and, and you know, possibly making tons of money and sellouts. 
different time here in 91. So what were your thoughts on the territory of Memphis? Uh, it, it was at least steady uh, with, with regular towns like Memphis on Monday, Louisville on Tuesday, Evansville, Indiana on a Wednesday. Uh, Thursday would be a spot show. And then Friday, something around uh, uh, the west end of, of Tennessee, around Memphis, you know, because we would have to stay over and, and do Memphis TV uh Saturday morning. So it was a steady place to work and it was a steady place to uh, go and and uh, the baby faces could sell gimmicks. The baby faces would uh uh you know uh, that that was where they actually supplemented their income. Yes, but a lot of them made made a lot more than than they were making uh uh wrestling just on gimmicks. So I looked at it wow. as yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, I, I did. I looked at it as uh, an opportunity to still be in the business and still be, you know, they still had their TV slot back then, live on TV, I think at 9 o'clock to, to 11 or whatever it might have been, 90 minutes. And, um, uh, you know, it was it was what it was. And, and at this time, uh, and I'm sure at any time I just didn't do it. But but if you had suggestions, you could talk to Lawler, you could talk to uh, whoever the booker might be, and and and, and that's the way you do it. You you have a relationship and and offer an idea, offer a suggestion, and and uh, that's what it, it had become. But but Memphis had always had some hokey stuff, some crazy stuff that that. Yeah. That you might kind of turn your head cockeyed, or I turned my head cockeyed a few times, but but at other times they would do um, some some crazy good stuff, and and at that time during that run, uh, you know they had they had the Moon Dogs in, and the Moon Dogs were brought in, and and then they hot shot of the territory. Um, it, it, it was Lawler and Jeff against the Moon Dogs, and Jeff got hurt, or Jeff just didn't want to do it, and said he got hurt, whatever it may be. But then they came to me and said, "We're going to put you with Lawler against the Moon Dogs," and and they drew, but it's it, it was hot shot, and they they you know they drew because all they did was take chairs in the ring and just beat the living hell out of you, and that's what the match was. It lasted uh, maybe eight minutes, maybe ten minutes, but it wasn't wrestling. It was just going in there and literally just beating the hell out of you. With the chair, you turn it around, beat the hell out of them with the chair, and throw it out and DQ, double DQ every night. And um, <laughs> sometimes you get juice, sometimes you wouldn't. And my back had been hurting after about two weeks of that. Out real quick, I know I'm going off 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 the road here, but but one Saturday morning, my my back was just killing me. And I asked Bill, Bill Smith, and uh, it was Bill Smith and Larry Booker is one of the as the Moon Dogs team of the Moon Dogs. And I asked them both. I said, please, man, could you just not lay it in today because I'm I'm really hurting. Let's do it tonight in Nashville. We got on TV. Uh, they they attacked me after the match, and uh, it was Bill who hit me in the back, and he busted my head open right at the base of my neck. And it was like, oh, my God. And it hurt so bad. I got seven stitches there. And so I had to go work Nashville that night. Um, but, you know, it, it, was a, it was a place to work every night. And back then, in the, in the uh, early 90s or late 80s especially, that was going away. So for guys like me, who had never planned 
uh, to get a run in New York, that was pretty much I'd, I'd crossed that off the list a long time ago. Just for 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 numerous reasons, I was hoping it would last forever. And and uh, but the second best thing happened was was Jim Cornette calling about Smoky Mountain Wrestling while while I was still working Tennessee. So so I liked it. I was glad it was there for guys and and everybody to have a place to go. Absolutely. And as far as you know, working the Moon Dogs and doing that crazy style and and obviously said hot shotting, but also them doing these brawls and street fights. Do you think kind of after a while they'll rest on those guys? It's almost like a detriment to, to your career almost where it takes some, like maybe take some time off of your career or not, not to that extent as far as injuries and different things like that. Um, honest to goodness, I never really thought about any of that. The first time that, uh, <laughs> that ever really crossed my mind, was in Smoky Mountain when uh, Jackie Fulton just threw a spinning kick out of nowhere, and it was pretty fast, and it was uh, it was, it landed right on my nose and my neck. I mean, it jammed me. It hurt so bad, and it didn't hurt that night. It hurt. I mean, I I felt my neck jam, but it hurt the next day, and I went to a chiropractor about. Uh, a week later, because I had to keep working every night, or it wasn't every night, or I think it was, or it was a few times anyway, and uh, that's when I started thinking, ooh, that's when the bumps, <laughs> that's that's when I really started thinking. The, the chairs were solid, uh, but I never really thought about it. I just thought, well, really, this is, this is the business, and uh, uh, I didn't think about it, no. But but when Jackie kicked me in the face, I started thinking about it. This is definitely going to take years off my career. As far as USWA, Memphis, you mentioned being steady. How were the payoffs? I mean, decent, okay, livable. You could have been better. Like how? Uh, they they certainly could have been better. But but I went to Jerry Jarrett at the time, and I was frustrated uh, because I was working with Jeff and. Jeff had the new car. I didn't begrudge him at all. I look. I, I understood his position. He's he's the owner's son. What what are you going to do? But unlike other kids that get a bad rap, Jeff never complained, and Jeff could actually work. And I enjoyed working with Jeff. But I I also knew that uh, if I'm going to work with Jeff. And we're going to have good matches. If I don't say something, nobody else is going to say something. Uh, and, and no one else is going to say, here, I think you deserve more money. And all I did was ask for uh, a small guarantee. It wasn't a whole lot. But it was a lot more than it was normally than you were going to make every night. It was a lot more than 40 bucks a night. Let me say it. Not a lot more. But it was, but it was more than 40 bucks a night. Mm-hmm. And I looked around, and, and I didn't see why that would be impossible right then and it wasn't and he and he he agreed and we did that so uh for me that's what i was living on and and that was livable and it was tolerable and uh one more thing i did when i got there on on this occasion uh i'll never forget buddy lindell said this and I, i was i was there when he said it and and my first uh Time back at Memphis, it was Saturday morning TV. Uh, they had me in the first match that Monday night. 
and it was listed on the card. They'd run down the card, and I came out with Terry Gibbs or, or Terry Garvin, excuse me. And I said, I didn't come here to jerk the curtain. I'm looking for your Southern Champion Jeff Jarrett. And Jerry Lawler's not the world champion. Terry Funk is, and uh, I'm from Texas too. And but but the the gist was, I said, I'm not here to jerk the curtain. So the next so that Monday night they put me in the sixth match, just because I said that. And they made it a point. Uh, uh, Eddie Kim made it a point to come tell me said, you're not jerking the curtain tonight, son. We're going to put you in the sixth match. And I looked at him and almost laughed because, again, it's just like saying, you're not from Texas, you're from Kentucky. Yeah, I'm, mm-hmm. I'm saying that <laughs> so you understand. Um, I'm here for a different purpose. I want the Southern champion. I want the, the, the world champion. I want whoever has the most to offer here. And, and plus they had the Texas title going on too. So um, it was – it was a, a different attitude. Again, it was a whole different uh, uh, way to approach it back then, and and it was uh, it worked for us at the time. You mentioned going Evansville, Indiana, Louisville, Kentucky, Memphis, Tennessee. Obviously, maybe a little bit of Humboldt, Tennessee. Where you know a few different places. How were the road trips on you? Were they that bad? Were they that far? Were they oh. that crazy? No, not at all. Um, I mean, I was I was living in uh, Nashville at the time, and I was having I was still having a lot of fun. And uh, at that time, at any time, I think you should have fun in this business. Yes, it's about making money, no doubt. But you you can make money. Get, and get a regular job if that's what you're in it for. I, again, this is this can be a great life. It can be a horrible life, but it's all really what you make it. I I like going up and down the roads. I liked making the trips. I the Louisville Gardens um, is, is a great building. Uh, Mid South Coliseum was a great classic wrestling building, and uh, so. I mean, I, they they weren't that bad. They weren't that far. I mean, uh, we had Evansville, we had Louisville, we had uh, uh, Memphis, 200, 200 miles to Memphis from Nashville. Uh, Louisville was like 165 miles, you know. So, I mean, it really wasn't that bad at all. Now, as far as like the, the territory itself, and you're saying steady pay, steady work. Did you actually like, you know, the fans in Memphis, the people in Memphis? Did you feel like they were good wrestling fans, or yeah, you didn't even care about or think about stuff like that? Uh, no, no, no. That, yeah, Memphis has always had good wrestling fans. Memphis had, uh, you know, the Admiral Bimbo Hotel where uh, uh, there was debauchery galore. But again, that was what the business was. It was after, uh, you know, before TV on Friday night. You know the. People would uh, would make uh, you know food for the guys, rent rooms, and and have have food for uh, everybody who showed up, and 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 also the fans were very supportive, and and they they loved the king when he was supposed to be loved, and hated him when he was supposed to be hated. They were good wrestling fans; they really were. And in Louisville, and in, in all the regular towns, you had your regular fans. It was uh, it was pretty cool. And, you know, I think, really, honest to God, I think a lot could be said while we're talking about 
you know, territory like USWA. A lot could be said about what's going on today. Um, uh, wow. I'm sorry. I, uh, everybody knows we're taping this on a Sunday, right? Yes, absolutely. Okay. And I just happen to have, uh, money in the bank on and brother love just came out of the bathroom. Oh my God. The, that's what I'm saying. It just stopped me in my tracks. So there they go. Now, anyway, uh, the guys today, it's it's a different business and a different environment, different travel conditions. But I think really that is 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 a lot of what's missing is being able to do uh, the same towns every week or or traveling. You know, when they get to a town, we, we they'll base out of somewhere and then and and hit the territory that way, but um, or hit the hit the loop. But but back then, you know, you were going to the same town and you'd get to know the people and and uh you know, some sometimes you didn't want to be around them and you you'd find a way to get out of it and but uh, I, I mean, it was it was a great uh opportunity to learn the business and I think that's really a lot of a lot of the uh, elements that are missing today is that chance to to go and learn every night. You know, in, in the same towns, having to be creative every week. They have to be creative now every week, of course, but right. it's, it's it's in a different way creatively, I guess. Quick sidebar, um, Brother Love doesn't give you the heads up. He's going to be coming out of the bathroom in a, in a scene, does he? No, no, I, I, I'm i sitting here watching it. No, it's just Mysterio, Mysterio stops on the way up to the roof, and he sees the urinal, and then they, they show Brother Love no, coming out of the And I'm thinking, oh, okay, great. That just stopped me in my tracks, so I had to. I had to plug that, but anyway, so if I get, if I seem distracted, I don't mean to be. Uh, but this is this is interesting. Uh, uh, I remember this room anyway. Okay, good. We'll 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 go on. Yes, as far as learning the business and learning the territory, is Jerry Jarrett and Jerry Lawler two great guys to learn from? Uh well. Yeah, for both good and bad. I mean, learn learn what to do and what not to do. Of course, um, it, it it look. Uh, I learned. Oh, you're kidding me! Now we have Doink. All right, I learned a lot about the business in Memphis, and I I, I learned a lot about um, people in Memphis, and. Uh, Lawler will help you if you if you want help and if he thinks you're worth helping. That's my opinion. Uh, Jerry Jarrett will uh, give you his opinion, and then you have to decipher and figure out what that really means. It, and that's that's my take on how that went down. But yeah, they, they are good to learn from uh, for both good and bad traits. I think. I feel like Jerry Jarrett might be underrated as far as like a mind for wrestling or a mind for the business, just because, you know, he had ran a successful territory forever and was somehow getting paid in, in the nineties as a consultant for WWF and WCW at the same time. So he's pretty crafty, smart guy, right? Well, uh, I think by virtue of the fact that he has been around that long, uh, but anyone who's been around that long, in my opinion, and this goes for any and everyone, um, 
you you surround yourself with great people, and uh, <laughs> I think Jerry did that. He surrounded himself with with Bill Dundee, Jerry Lawler, mm-hmm. uh, with people who really had great mind for it. Jerry, I'm I'm sure he did. I I didn't. I don't ever remember sitting down with with Lawler or Jarrett and going over um, a match per se. Maybe you know it was always Embry or whoever I was working with, and uh, coming up with what we needed to come up with. But, yeah, I think by virtue of the fact that just being around that long and just uh, existing and being around, it's it says a lot about knowing how to survive in this business. And that's a admirable trait, I guess. No doubt about that. Yeah, absolutely. As far as Eric Embry, the wrestler and the booker, what were your thoughts on him? I had I had uh, I'd known Eric through the years. We had we had uh, passed each other uh, in various uh, events, some some shows in in the Midwest, I guess. But this is the first time I really had an up close um, view, I guess. And Eric was a smart guy. Eric knew. Uh, how to make things connect and and weave them together for a television television show, as well as a live show, um, live event. So I he he had done it in Dallas. He had uh, he gained the confidence of people, and he knew how to talk to the boys. So uh, I, I had I had a fine time with Eric. I had no problems with him. Now, you're really technically, I mean, like this could be off or wrong or something, but it looks like technically speaking, USWA debut looks to be February of 91 against Conan, Chris Walker, a loss via DQ. I don't know if you're going to remember the actual date or anything like that, but, and I know we t- mentioned him kind of very, very briefly uh, about Night, Night of Legends once before, but what were your thoughts of Conan, Chris Walker? Because I don't remember you working him, but I guess you did. I guess I did, yeah. Uh, I do remember him as being a big muscle-bound guy with long, curly hair, but but he was one of those big muscle-bound guys with the long hair that could be Mm -hmm. really dangerous if if, uh, you let him uh, get close to you and and let him put his his hands on you. So uh, that's what I thought. He, He wasn't he, he sure wasn't a a natural, so to speak. But uh, you know, I I, I just I, I thought he was one of those guys that had promise if he would have ever ever taken the time to to, to learn. But I don't know that he did. Never, it never it never appeared that way to me. As you're kind of moving along the territory and moving around, you mentioned before kind of going after the, the Texas Heavyweight Championship and the Southern Heavyweight Championship. When you're there and you're upon this basically somewhat of a, of a long singles run, I mean, basically from February of 91 to, to October of 92, you go back in 93 for like basically one match or so. But really, I mean, this whole run here is going to be a, a long, somewhat big singles run for you. Were you looking at it as like a big opportunity to kind of break out and, and to get noticed? Uh, well, no, I think, <laughs> I think, I think quite honestly, while I was in Memphis, um, 
during this time. I was uh, thinking that the, the window of opportunity um, wasn't going to open very far. I was I was going to make the most of my opportunities in Memphis, and I wasn't um, I wasn't looking at uh, WWE calling anytime soon. I wasn't looking at AWA. I wasn't looking at anybody. Uh, I, I was looking to do the best work I could there, and make the most out of. Uh, my opportunities and working with Jeff and and again there were some some guys uh, that that by this time in my career I think I've I've already been working you know since '79 so I've been 10 years in and mm-hmm. and and I was a heel and I felt comfortable as a heel and I knew uh, that I could take a baby face and I knew I could call a match at that time I knew that uh, if you gave me a baby face. Like Brian Christopher at that time, as a matter of fact, I think I worked with him, and that was the time I'm uh, in in Louisville. You know, somebody had actually come up to me and says, "Don't give him shit. He's got a horrible attitude." And I went to uh, Brian. I said, "Listen, nobody here likes you. Nobody wants to work with you. And uh, if you just trust me, I'm not going to eat you up. But if you listen to me, I promise you, we'll have a good match. Uh, so I'm not I'm not messing with you, man. But we went out and we had a good match, and he, and he learned to trust me because I wasn't out there to take advantage of. I went out there to bury him, and uh, so so I was looking just to to uh, become a general and and uh, learn how to uh, make it work. So that, that's that's what I was looking for. As far as Brian Christopher, you guys had a big time feud in USWA, and. Obviously, I mean, maybe people say nepotism, he's getting the push. He's becoming USWA champion on and off. Obviously, as you are, too, as, as the feud kind of progresses. You trade the title a little bit back and forth. But what, you, what were your thoughts on him? Any nepotism there? Obviously, he is a good wrestler, was a good worker. But no, 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 I don't, no. I don't believe there was nepotism in, in the sense that, uh, you know, you can, the king, I think, I think with a lot of guys, it, it's a miss. Uh, uh, perception, because um, no, there's no doubt there is nepotism in, in any entertainment business, and nepotism especially in here. But uh, the king was the king, and and he wasn't going to let anybody uh, share his spotlight, and mm. especially without earning it. And Brian earned his spot. Brian was a, a, a very talented uh, wrestler, and he could cut a hell of a promo. So, uh, no, I don't. I don't believe it was. I believe Ryan worked for what he got and busted his ass every time he went out there. Definitely a great hand. You guys had a pretty damn good feud there. Did you enjoy working with him? The chemistry was great. Did you have like any kind of, uh, you know, fond memories of working with Brian? Uh well, yeah, because once you start having fun and once you can trust somebody in the ring that it, it all becomes fun and, and it all becomes um, uh, something to create when you go out there. And I think Brian wanted to create a body of work that, that showed he was capable and it wasn't just, and it wasn't nepotism. And, and I'm sure that that uh, was something that, you know, uh, people say to him and people wouldn't, mm-hmm. Uh, imply, 
but uh, you know, I think here's a chance to to show that he, he actually had talent. And at that time, uh, it wasn't acknowledged that he was uh, Lawler's kid, so he was uh, he he was he was working his ass off to to prove uh, he was his own man. And I thought he did a hell of a job. Also, you mentioned feuding with Jeff Jarrett, too, at this point. What were your thoughts of him, though, as far as your chemistry? You said he's a great worker. He's kind of in that Brad Armstrong realm, realm too. Any nepotism there, too? Because people would think that. Obviously, Jeff's a great worker, but people would think, too, like, oh, he's taking his dad's name now. It's his dad's territory. He's getting this push. Any kind of pullback on Jeff? Yeah, the, there were a few people had resentment, and um, uh, but I, I, I didn't resent Jeff one, one bit. I, I knew, again, after working with him and watching him and uh, uh, talking with him and, and and having a program with him, he uh, he he worked his ass off too. And he went to the gym. He, he he took pride in how he looked, and and he wanted to have great matches too. So, no matter uh, what people would think or say, uh, some guys we're, we're never going to get a fair. Um, opportunity or fair break because of who their dads were and 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 uh you know guys like you know ricky steamboat or ricky steamboat's son in in fcw he it's just it's it's not about that i think the guys the second generation guys have to work that much harder because of the stigma because of the perception because people think uh well it's he's he's getting this push because of his dad well uh, some people that's that may be true, but the the guys in Memphis, I think there was um, that element of wanting to make it on their own and not wanting to rest on their dad's uh, reputation or or laurels or anything like that. You know, it's so interesting that just kind of going through some of the USWA and the matches, and just one really stuck out to me. A couple of them really stuck out, but this one really did just because it's strange. It seems like a big match. It's uh, Mid-South Coliseum, October 21st, 1991. I'm not going to say you're going to remember that date, but it's you, Eric Embry, and Tony Fox, the legendary Tony Fox, against Jeff Jarrett, Robert Fuller, and Eddie Marlin. Kind of, kind of, do you remember that at all? Because that kind of, kind of, struck me as kind of odd. Uh, yeah, I I don't doubt it one bit because uh it would it would it would run into into a chapter like that in whatever book Eric was writing or reading at the time and I and, and I think uh Eddie Marlin was was a promoter. Eddie Marlin was a figurehead and, mm-hmm. and uh, obviously, Eric wanted to make sure every everybody had a chance sometimes to get involved because that's just the way it was in Memphis. And if he got heat on a figurehead or a promoter, then then it was like the uh, uh, raw general manager, whatever it may be. So I don't really recall that because I'm sure it was a barn burner. But uh, we we did a few things like that in Memphis and and. Okay, I, I honest to God, uh, <laughs> some some stuff was good, some stuff wasn't so good. Just uh, I just kind of I was curious, like how old was he at that point? But yeah, it's interesting. Pretty old. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, obviously passed away uh, only a year ago, I think, just about. Okay, so how old was he when he passed away? Do you remember? Ninety, I want to say. <laughs> okay, then he was old thirty years ago. Yeah. Oh yeah. 
God. Especially, especially in the room with you guys. It's, like you say, I mean, you're 10 years in. This is kind of your your prime years kind of going on, and he's in there with you guys. Right. Obviously, you protected him. It's a sick man, but it's just interesting the way the way it goes that way. Yeah, yeah. And, and I think it, it went that way more times than not back then. And, and today, thank God. Uh, <laughs> well, there's still some times when they do stuff like that. But thank God it's not as prevalent as it used to be. Now, on the opposite end of the spectrum, there's a bunch of tag matches that you are involved with with a certain guy that would go on to become one of the biggest stars of all time, Stone Cold, before he was Stone Cold, just regular old Steve Austin. What were your thoughts to, of Steve at this time? Because, I mean, you guys are teaming, but he's kind of relatively new to the business at this point. Yeah, but you, you could tell, looking at Steve, uh, he was one of those guys. He was always in shape. And we lived at a place called the Congress Inn in Nashville. And it was just a really horrible place. But, but you know, it was cheap. And you're living in Memphis or living in, in Nashville, working working for the Jarrett's. You're not making a lot of money. Uh, but you, you could tell that Steve had drive and had ambition. And he he had something. He looked the part. When he when he got in the ring, he was uh, new, uh, fairly new, uh, first five years in the business, I think, and you, uh, you could tell he was going to be somebody. You just uh, same thing with Rock. You knew he was going to be somebody. You just I don't think anybody could have guessed, you know, at that time. Say you're going to be the biggest star on the planet. Well, <laughs> at one time he was. Steve was the biggest star on the planet, and. Uh, you know, but that that's how it works. And he tells that story. That was where uh, I was riding with him and Brian Lee. And I asked them both, you know, who is who is prime time Brian Lee? What is what is stunning Steve Austin? How who are you? And uh, he reminded me of that a couple times. And finally, when when he was Stone Cold in WWE, he says, "I'll never forget when you told me or asked me." Uh, who was stunning Steve Austin. He said, I think I found it right now, Stone Cold. And he's right. I mean, mm-hmm. Absolutely. you could tell. You could tell that, that he was going to be somebody. I mean, but it just it takes time. It takes building those relationships. And it also takes uh, getting experience under your belt. And that's all he was missing. I love kind of just looking back at your career into some of the matches. Like, for instance, obviously today, USWA we're talking about, and I'll just pull up like, oh, Eddie Marlin, for God's sakes, was in a, a you know six-man tag with you guys. And obviously then you look, it's like, oh, okay, awesome. You know, you're teaming with Steve Austin, teaming with uh, Eric Amber, whoever. But then you kind of come across some weird partners, like Tojo Yamamoto would be your partner you know, against Billy Travis and Jarrett. Now, Tojo is kind of past his prime a little bit, too, at this point, I, I would think, right? Yes. Very much past his prime. But the cool thing about that was this. Uh, I, I watched a guy in El Paso. His name was P.Y. Chung. And I'll never forget he did an angle where he hit Jerry Kozak in the throat with a karate thrust on an interview when when Kozak's holding a board for P.Y. Chung to break. And, and he puts that thrust right into Kozak's uh, throat and then they're going to fight or they're going to wrestle in the Coliseum in El Paso Monday night. Well, that was P.Y. Chung. Tojo Yamamoto was P.Y. Chung. And I remember seeing him as a kid on TV, and then I got to talk to him, and then I got to 
I got to know him a little bit, and it's it's like he he was the classic uh, old timer, a classic veteran that uh, he wasn't. He surely wasn't refined. But you didn't. I didn't get in this business to find, uh, you know, uh, scholars and 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 lawyers and things like that. Although they are in there, in here. But but I, you know, I got in this business because it is what it is. And and uh, you know, I didn't want to be around uh, common everyday things. I wanted to be around this 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 uh, twilight or universe that had all these things in it. And, and Tojo was part of that, that universe. I mean, he, he would, um, he would do things for shock value a lot of times, but uh, yeah, he was, he was the old classic veteran that I, I saw as a young kid. And uh, then I got to know him as a, as a wrestler and it was kind of cool actually. So, they weren't the best matches in the world. We kept Tojo out of it, obviously. But, I mean, uh, uh, he had been around for a long time. He was a legend in Memphis. So, no doubt uh, about it. Yeah, it was cool. Very cool. Another awesome match at just around you. Five-on-four handicap match. You to Texas Hangman, Eric Embry, and Tojo Yamamoto versus Eddie Gilbert, Jerry Lawler, Jeff Jarrett, and Jackie Fargo. That's a hell of a match, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and I think uh, uh, that 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 might have been well. Obviously, it was one of the first times that I worked with Fargo, but but I had Fargo's last match actually somewhere in North Carolina. Uh, Bobby Fulton and I against uh, Jackie Fargo and Bo James, and and Jackie was like eighty or uh, whatever he was then. That was his last match. Oh, I know that much, and. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I got to, I got to work with a lot of the legends there, and and they they certainly might have been past their prime, no doubt, but still, it, it was one of those things where you still uh, or I still thought uh, it's an opportunity, and and uh, I got to share the ring with them. At this time, is it kind of known, or is it even a feeder development territory for the WWF? Because it seems like slowly but surely. It's going to become that, or it seems like it's going to become that. No, not at that time. At that time, we were still uh, Memphis was still not um, connected with WWF. I mean, uh, it wasn't until gosh, whenever whenever the the whole thing came down on Vince, that had to be ninety one, I think. Uh, more towards 92-ish, 93, yeah. Okay, because I was already gone. I, I don't think it was until then that, that – yeah, or whenever Lawler went to to, to Vince, but mm-hmm. – 93-ish, yeah. Okay, yeah, at that time, then no. No, it wasn't – it was not a developmental territory. It wasn't even – there was no talk of it. I, that, none that I heard anyway. And not that I would, but none that I heard. Did it seem like – like you – Jerry Jarrett was trying not not sell or anything, but it, did it seem like he was trying maybe to to make friends with Vince or get in with Vince even when you were there, or not at all? Well, uh, let me try and answer it like this. Um, I think for promoters in that day and age, 
and and I never forget Ole Anderson saying at one time we had a meeting because there was a lot of um, rental cars that were being wrecked and the boys are getting in trouble and uh, all kind of stuff. And Ole said, "Hey, you know the rental car companies they uh, they talk to each other just like we do. You know we we talk to each other all the time. So uh, y'all y'all won't be able to rent any cars if you keep this crap up. So um, promoters back then communicated, and uh, I think you know a guy like Jerry Jarrett was." knowledgeable enough to know uh, that you can pay a wrestler what you're going to pay him and he's either going to take it or, or not. And he wasn't going to offer you a whole lot of money. But but what, what was your question again about Jarrett? Because I want to make sure I answered this right. I had a, I had a uh, point to it. Well, was he thinking WBF? Was he thinking Vince? Was he thinking Deal? Well, I'm thinking no. That, that They might have been talking, but I don't know that... I mean, nobody ever said anything to me, but I don't know that... Uh, anybody was talking necessarily about all that. I mean, they, I'm sure that Vince was talking to Jarrett and they were talking to everybody else in the country too. That that was just a network back then. They, if they shared talent, they all knew uh, who was where and who was drawing money and who would do good, who could you groom and things like that. So, uh, I, I'm sure he had connections with Vince. Obviously, they, everybody did. Even when Vince wasn't with the NWA, and, and you know, I know he was just taking over. But at the same time, uh, it was I think their duty back then to know where everybody was, know what everybody was doing, and 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 go for it. So. Yeah, I, I I didn't hear any of that, but it wouldn't surprise me one bit. Gonna throw out another just random match for you. Six man tag: Billy Travis, Danny Davis, and Gary Young. This actually is USA USWA event held in Dallas, Texas. Uh, obviously, part of the Memphis Dallas connection there. Against Eric Embry, Tom Pritchard, and Gypsy Joe. <laughs> Doesn't. <laughs> uh yeah. Well. Uh... Was he Gypsy Joe or was he El Pistolero? Yes, he was El Pistolero, yes. Okay. Well, uh, you know, that that was my first um, uh, doings with, with Joe as well. And uh, he he was, again, you know, the classic old school guy who, who uh, I appreciated because he was rough around the edges and and uh didn't take a lot of crap and uh, <laughs> it was it was uh, anytime i had a match including gypsy joe he was one of these guys who wanted to show how tough he was and all that stuff and 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 do all the chairs and all the stuff and you know the deal with new jack right Oh yes, of course he'd yeah. be the living hell out of him. Even though right. he's seventy, he beat him up. Yep. Well, yeah, and and but you know, Joe had to stop and think for a second, but he wasn't thinking. I think at that time, you know, realizing that you yep. got to understand, man, this guy doesn't know who you are, and you got to introduce yourself, and you got to. And I think he was past that point, and 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 he was still living in the age that 
you know, when I was when I came up in the business, we did have respect for the veterans. The guys came before us, but it, it, but times have changed. And uh, but but at that time in in Dallas and in USWA, Joe was a lot of fun to be around, and uh, uh, he was uh, he was that classic old school vet who uh, would would slap the shit out of somebody if he felt the need to slap the shit out of somebody. I love it. As far as, you know, USWA and these kind of guys coming in and out, and obviously, you know, you got different legends and obviously also some random matches. You mentioned sometimes Memphis can be crazy and wacky and all different things. But for the most part, you were booked pretty strong, you know, six-time Southern Heavyweight Champion, two-time Texas Champion. I'm not going to get into it with the, the tag team championship. I think that that could be a whole separate thing to itself. But one-time tag champ with uh, Jimmy Del Rey. I mean, you were booked pretty well down there as far as that singles run from 91, 92, and a little bit of 93. Yeah, but, uh, again, I think it goes back to the fact that uh, Jerry Jarrett and uh, Lawler, as well as Eric, knew uh, – I, you had somebody to work with Jeff. You had somebody who could work with uh, Brian. You had somebody who could work with Lawler Dundee. You had somebody who could work. Dirty White Boy, with, too. Yep. Yeah, Dirty White Boy, you know, and, and had some guys. And, and I think they knew at that time, too, I because they put me in the ring with some young guys. They put me in the ring, and and, and I, I – that that was what I was looking at the next uh, thing to do. It's not that I was – looking at a coaching position, although later on when Jerry did open up that school, uh, I did go down there, and uh, I did go down there on the on the day that they forgot about it, and I went ahead and ran class, and then Eddie Marlin showed up like an hour and a half later and saw that I had already gone in and began class, and then I, it became a regular gig with me. But uh, they did that again, I think, because that's where they found <laughs> – found themselves at in, in, in the in the way of booking and, and running towns. They needed people that could go out and have matches, and they needed people that could uh, help teach the guys that they had uh, with less experience. And and that's what I embraced about it because I was um, getting to that point, and uh, I, I just saw that as the next – part to get to in the business is, is I remember guys who would take me in the ring, like Les Thornton, John Tolis, and, uh, hell, Pampero Furpo, Ron Starr, mm. uh, guys like that in LA. And they would teach me and they would tell me, slow down and calm down. And I remember the guys who were cool with it. And I remember the guys who weren't. And I always want to be that guy who, uh, would rather help somebody as opposed to being that, uh, grumpy veteran that, that I can turn into on occasion because uh, I, I knew how I felt and I knew how I reacted when somebody yelled at me or they or they taught me and, and sat down and talked to me after the match, and that's what I wanted to do. As far as USWA, I feel like this is a great like stopping point just for this intro almost to USWA because I feel like this is a topic we can definitely uh, bring up again and definitely kind of talk for uh, a lot a lot of different guys and a lot of different stories and even a different time period of USWA a little Smoky Mountain versus USWA if you I think we could probably get into and, and go even further but I think for now I think that's kind of a great stopping point almost a great intro to Dr. Tom in USWA you you agree with that 
I, I do agree. I really had a my, my last run with USWA was probably the best and the most fun. Uh, and, and it's because of guys like Jeff Jarrett and Billy Joe Travis and, and yes, Eric Embry and Dundee. I had I had some matches uh, with Dundee at that time, too, who I had kind of a um, interesting relationship with as well. But I came to respect Bill, too. And I, I came to understand and look at it from a whole different angle and a whole different side of, of what they were doing. And it was a great territory at one time. And they they did have some some great crowds and some great spectacles and some great talent come through there. And, and no one can deny that. Um, there There's a lot of things that you can say was wrong with it. But in the end... It was professional wrestling at that time in the USWA, and I wanted to be a professional wrestler, and I got to be a professional wrestler. And I I was still wanting to be a professional wrestler at that time in my life, and it gave uh, me and a lot of guys the opportunity to do it. But, yeah, there's plenty more mm-hmm. where that came from and plenty more to dive into. So, But right now, I agree with you, John. That is a good stopping point. Absolutely, and as far as some plugs, ProWrestlingTees.com. Head over to JPWA store, buy a shirt of a JPWA, support them. Also, go to Dr. Tom's Pro Wrestling store and get a shirt. I always recommend it, but get the Wanted, Dead, or Alive shirt. That is a great, great shirt. You can also go to Patreon. A page has been set up where you can become a patron and support a JPWA. Go to JPWA's website, JPWrestlingAcademy.com. Also have to mention this, of course, and we're going to keep pumping this one up. Dr. Tom's book, a complete one-year training curriculum and guide for beginners and seasoned pros, a pro wrestling curriculum, advice, suggestions, and stories to help the aspiring pro get to the next level. Dr. Tom, what do you have to say about that? Well, you can uh, get it for $25 at my PayPal, which is drtompritchard at AOL.com, or you can also get it on Amazon. And I have ordered books. They are due in by May 18th. And I do have some orders that I need to ship out. And uh, they, I haven't forgot them. I have them right here in a folder ready to go as soon as they get here they will be in the envelopes and out but yeah get it if you're looking for some suggestions uh looking for some training tips just an idea a guide uh, it's it's nothing etched in stone uh it's what it says it is suggestions and uh ideas so um get that get a shirt uh, check us out at jpwa.com or jpwrestlingacademy.com. I think you mentioned that. And we're mm-hmm. also on Facebook, too. So uh, a lot of things coming up. We we are looking, uh, keeping our fingers crossed, if I can mention this as well, mm-hmm. we are looking to reopen JPWA Ooh, nice. J- June 1st. If everything goes well in this first phase of uh, the reentry program that that um, Knox County has uh, put out there. So nothing nothing definite yet, but June first is the soonest that uh, we are looking to open up, and we will have everything sanitized, uh, cleaned up, and we're going to do our diligence with this. And uh, I'm excited about it because it's been a while, and I I really can't wait to get things cooking again. 
That sounds awesome. And, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at 2MPowerTrip, and you can follow Dr. Tom at Dr. Tom Pritchard. And that is all for this week. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you stay safe, stay healthy out there, keep that social distance, and we will see you right here next week on Taking You to School with Dr. Tom Pritchard. See you next week, folks. Thanks for listening to the two-man power trip of wrestling. What the world is downloading.